Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I'm here in Scottsdale, Arizona with a longtime friend of mine, Kip Fatella, and it's hard to corral this guy because he is a just always on the move. move. Uh, Kip is one of those guys that I've known for a long, long time, 20, 20 probably plus years. Yes. And it's always so fun to get together with you, Kip, and one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is you live the sporting life like there's no doubt that you love to hunt and fish yes you love the adventure and and the thing i like about you is you have multiple seasons in that you you know during coos deer rut you know you're chasing coos deer when the mule deer are rutting you you know um when, when the fish are biting here or fish are biting there it's like you know it's the sporting life and um, I love your Facebook page, getting the reports on your Facebook, and I'm just excited today to sit down and do an interview with you because I think you bring a lot of value of many, many years of actually doing. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate that very much. I feel very, very lucky to be able to do the hunting and fishing that I have done um, in my years here, and I feel um, that after all these years, I've got it down where I want to hunt coos deer in the rut. I want to hunt elk in the rut. I want to hunt mule deer in the rut in prime times. I am hopefully on the water in Mexico fishing yellowtail during the peak of the seasons there in January and February. And as the marlin move up and the warmer water currents come up, I fish those too. So, You know, and one of the things, Kip, that I like about you so much, you know, Everybody in their course of their life, you know, you have years that are lean years, you have years that you're, you know, you're making all kinds of money, you got, you know, it's, it's, it's an ebb and it's a flow. But one of the things that I always have always admired about you, you know, whether we're in the boom times or whether we're in the lean times, you're, you're doing it like you're hunting and fishing. It's not going to affect, you know, whether you make a million dollars one year or you don't make any money one year, you're still going to be chasing elk during the rut you're yes. still going to be up on the arizona strip you know dur- during the rut you're still going to be down there like you said fishing yellowtail like it's not changing you no i'm not going to allow um you know, the the money um to affect where i'm going in, in terms of fishing again i i am enjoying my time in the field too much to allow that to affect it and it is my life and my lifestyle is uh, is outdoors and and in, and showing other people that the outdoors and, and what you know, we have to offer in terms yeah. of hunting and fishing. I, I mean, it's it's just so fun and so refreshing for me to, to follow you because we don't talk on the phone a lot, but I can follow on your Facebook and I can get where's Kip today. I mean, yes. some of our mutual buddies, you know, um, uh some of our mutual buddies are like, I'm like, have you heard from Kip? And he's killing it. And they're like, he's living the dream. I'm like, of course he is. Like everybody <laughs> wakes up with a choice. That That's one thing I, I never really understand. It's like everybody wakes up in the morning and they have a choice to follow their dream or follow what the world quote unquote says, this is the dream. Yes. Or their expectations, yeah. which, what they should be doing. So no, I'm not going to allow that to happen to me in my life here again. And the older I get, the more I realize that my time in the field should never be taken for granted. And I want to spend every bit of it I can out there. Um, it is uh, for me, uh, my, my serenity, my peace, um, and my passion, obviously, as you said, I appreciate you noticing that because I do have a great, great passion for the outdoors and what mother nature has to offer to us. Yeah, and it's also just so refreshing refreshing because some days when you're out in the field, it's just not on. 
And some days when you're on the water, it's on fire and, you know, fish are jumping in the boat and you may go out the very next day and it not be on. And I like how you report the good and the bad and you seem to have a good attitude, whether it's good or bad. And yes. even on the days when I've seen videos where they're just literally fish on every rod and you're yes. just going and you're just like, oh, buddy, they're on today. And it's, you know, it just is what it is. Well, I hate to sound too cliche, but I like the term there are no bad days. Um, you know, that term we use it down in Mexico an awful lot. And I truly believe that there are no bad days. There are days when the fish are not biting or the currents or the, you know, the weather conditions are not permitting for us to get offshore or, or to fish correctly. There's days when the weather, um, you know, um, is not cooperating for our hunting as well, too. We have you know, adverse weather days or conditions where it makes it difficult to get around, whatever that, you know, problem may be for us. But every day in the field needs to be um, appreciated by all of us. And, and there, I truly believe there are no bad days out there for us. Yeah, and I think to, to further that point, like, I know there's guys that probably see my page and your page and they may see a day and, and, you know, you're saying, oh, it's too windy to go out today or we're just going to stay in inland. We're going to stay Close. in a little bit yeah. and maybe we didn't have a good day, but there's still those guys that are sitting in the office going, golly, they're out <laughs> on the water. What are they, what are we doing here in the office? I think both you and I have both had many days where we're sitting in a wall tent watching the snow just yeah. lay down and the rain come down. We're like, you know, this is brutal. This is tough, but it, it, the truth of it is we're enjoying ourselves. Yeah. And again, we know what the opposite side is. We know what sitting in an office is and, and, uh, and we feel lucky and, and feel very blessed to be out there. And so always, you know, again, it goes back to what you just said, no bad days. That's awesome. Kip, I want to ask you, um, kind of where did you get your start, um, for the love of hunting and fishing and kind of maybe give a little background on where you kind of grew up and kind of where you cut your teeth. Um, before I even met you, our, our mutual friend, Ryan uh, Wampler, he always say, Kip Fattel is the best fisherman I know. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter Very what kind of, of him. <laughs> what kind of fishing. Like he said, Kip can catch fish anywhere. That's you give so him funny. enough time, he will figure out he can catch fish. I just wonder where it kind of all started and maybe give us a little bit of a kind of a brief bio on and background on your, your love. Okay. Well, I grew up here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm actually fourth generation native here in Arizona and we've, my family comes from the White Mountains, and so as a young man, I spent a young boy, I should say, I spent a lot of my summers up in the White Mountains, fishing the creeks and the streams over there. I was lucky enough that my father, our parents, we had a beach house in Southern California as well, too. So I spent some of my time over there, and we fished a, a lot, you know, both offshore and inshore, both um, growing up and in the mountains here. So uh, I think it just kind of comes along with, you know, being where I was brought up, and I think a, a part of it too is. It's, it's, some of it's innate. I think that there's some people that are born with that love of the outdoors and the mountains and sleeping in the dirt in the back of a truck or wherever you're at or dealing with cold conditions while you're fishing. And I think a lot of that's, um, some of it's, more of it's actually innate. I think it's, um, you know, interesting to see people that have large families and some of the kids want to fish, some of them don't want to fish or hunt, you know, and um, but yeah, going back to me, I, I felt very lucky too, because we, my father, uh, enjoyed hunting and fishing. He was not as involved with it as I am. Um, the bug bit me more. Of course, he was supporting myself and my seven siblings. So he was working a lot more, but he, um, we flew down into Mexico as a young man. Um, we used to fly down there and we would fish down there in, in San Carlos, which I, again, is my home port. 
um, San Carlos, Sonora, Mexico, and we would hunt the ranches out there when we were younger and before there was even a permitting system. It's kind of interesting mm-hmm, how long mm-hmm. we've been down there hunting. And so, Is um, it, Was it one of those things that your dad was into it, but not to the level that maybe you were into it or even the level now, but he saw that you had the passion for it, so he made time to make sure to take and do those things. You hit the nail right on the head. I, again, my father, um, with all of my siblings, he knew all of us had individualities, all loved different things. My brothers enjoyed the outdoors, not to the, the extent that I do, but um, he made time to make sure that we could. Um, his passion was flying. My father's passion was flying. And he, um, so if he could incorporate putting us in the plane and flying us out to Casa Grande and landing out there and shooting pheasants or chasing quail in the desert or flying to Mexico fishing or flying to San Diego, um, we were you know, lucky to be able to have all those experiences uh, growing up. And so... It, again, I think a lot of it was it was just innate. I've always had this great appreciation for Mother Nature, um, animals. As a young boy, I raised all kinds of animals. We used to raise quail and pheasant and chickens and rabbits and, and all that fun stuff. And, and um, so I just have always enjoyed all of that. As I've gotten older, I even have a greater appreciation. I, we do a lot of hunting where I spend more time where I feel like I'm bird watching through my great big optics or just looking at other animals, you know, that they're out there, not necessarily always just so concentrated, you know, and just on, on looking for that one deer. And, um, I, I, I'm lucky. I'm a very lucky man to be brought up where I was and how I was. And, and during an era where it was easy for us to get around and do the things that we were doing. So people ask me a lot, you know, if you had to choose, would you choose hunting over fishing, fishing over hunting? And I always have a hard time answering the question. I'm curious if you were asked the same question. Is there one that you would say if you had to give up one, would you would you give a, a nod to one or the other? You know, that's almost like asking me to give up one of my children. I know. <laughs> I know. So, both of them are such great passions for me. Again, just anything that I can do outdoors-wise. Um, I don't even know if I can answer that question. Uh, I would say that in my younger years, possibly I would have probably given up my fishing before my hunting. Um, at my point in my life, I feel lucky that, um, I've hunted most every mountain range in the state of Arizona, uh, at one time or another, and some many, many times over and over again, I have spent a lot of time out there. And the ocean just, to me, seems like a huge, vast wilderness still for me. And so when I get out there, I have a, no matter where I go, I feel like I have a great sense of exploration. But on the ocean, when I'm navigating on the, on the waters, I feel like I'm really exploring and, and, and experiencing something different, even though it's often just big blue waters, you know, but different water conditions. Um, so to, if I have to have to answer to you, Jay, I would say that at this point, I'd probably my offshore fishing's uh, greater for me um, at this point in my life. That's really cool. Um, I, I, I go back hearing you tell the story, and I can remember over the last 20, 25 years, certain situations, certain tags that I've drawn, certain tags that I was going to guide, what have you, and maybe I needed, I needed help. Mm-hmm. You would always be someone that I would call, and you'd be like, Oh yeah, buddy, I've been there. You need to go to such and such and you need to go here and you need to make sure you check this out. Come over to my house. Come over to my house. Bring a map. I'll show yeah. you. And you've always been so open and so willing to help. And that's one of the things, 
you know, in, in business, in, in your construction stuff, in, in you've always been willing to help. And that's one of the things I love about you've got such a big heart. And there's been multiple times where, you know, I've been struggling on a hunt or need to go scout somewhere. And I've, I'll call Kip. You've never one time said, you know what? Go up there yourself and figure it out. Like no. you've always said, make sure you check this spot. Make sure you check. You know, it's like. And and it's really cool to see because, you know, you're one of my mentors as far as you've been doing this longer than me. And it's just so nice to see that in in a world that, that we live in with, you know, competition and everybody's trying to get hunters and clients and what have you, but you've always been one. And it's not just with me. I, I know your reputation is with others that yeah. you're very willing to, to help. Yes. Uh, and I've always I want everybody to enjoy. I want everybody out there to truly enjoy, um, you know, what we have here and, and see it. I don't think of, I think when you said the term competition, I, 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 I don't think hunting and fishing is ever about competition. It's about enjoying what we have and what the day offers to you and what the, or the year offers to you, the antler growth year, whatever it is. And so we take what's given to us and every single opportunity to, that we're out there in the field. And so I don't have that sense of uh, competition. Um, and I, I don't know if that's bad or good, but (laughs) you know what I mean? I, I just want everybody to enjoy nature, um, and respect nature and, 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 uh, our great state of Arizona, I think is amazing. There's just so many wonderful places. And I, as a younger man, we rode mules and we backpacked into a lot of these places and, and I've seen them over the years and I want other people to experience them. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's there. I think there's plenty for everybody. I think that there's truly plenty for all of us here, uh, to enjoy, you know, what for we sure. have here. For sure. Um, I was, I was excited to get over here today. Um, you're headed off on another adventure, but you've been down in San Carlos, Mexico. That's correct. Um, that's, that's where you do a bunch of your fishing, offshore fishing. Yes. And, um, you're about to embark on another adventure, but I mean, all you've been literally all over the world and there's uh, you're able to draw on experiences from you know you're perfectly fluent in spanish uh, you're very well traveled uh you know you set up fishing trips hunting trips for people that's what you do uh and you're very good at it i want to ask you specifically some questions about san carlos you know about where it's located you know maybe some of the seasons and and you know where are we at now is it you know is it is it kind of over for a while is it is it just about to kick off when are you know tell me about san carlos mexico well again i call san carlos my home port um i've um been fishing there for well over 40 years and 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 i don't and you're talking about logistically first of all san carlos is approximately four hours south of nogales arizona or about a seven hour drive from from phoenix arizona so logistically it's a pretty easy place for us to get to and take parts down for boats and do that type. and of this thing. is also south of hermosillo by what two and a half hours no it's only about an hour okay. south of a little over an hour it's i think it's um a hundred kilometers south is so it's really not that far 65 70 miles um south of hermosillo um so the thing about San Carlos, what I really, really like, and, and, and a little bit of embellishment fishing around the world, but I have been to lots of places in the Americas. I've fished up and down you know, the Americas and, and the Baja and lots of different locations in Mexico. The great thing about San Carlos is that the, um, the fishing year-round is really, really, really good. We go from 
usually I start fishing, you know, around the deer hunting season. I'll get a few trips in in the end of December and January. And we have um, yellowtail that show up in, they don't show up. They're actually there. They come from the depths. They're during the warmer months, they go very deep. And as the winter progresses and the water starts to cool off, we see um, large, large schools of yellowtail showing up. Um, what what pound range roughly? You know, we find most of the fish probably fifteen to twenty five pound fish. We'll catch fish smaller, but we'll catch fish in the thirty five to forty pound. But at the same time that we're fishing yellowtail, the other reef fish are available to us as well. There's a lot of pargo, grouper, and other types of reef fish. So the fishing is very good through the winter months. I really enjoy the yellowtail fishing. Yellowtail, if you have not caught them, are uh, very powerful. They're part of the jack family. They're not part of the tuna family. Some people confuse yellowtail with yellowfin. Yellowfin tuna or yellowtail is actually part of the jack family. And these fish, um, they feed, they like to feed on the surface like tuna do, but we catch them in the depths as well too on jigs, vertical jigging. Um, the last couple of years, um, the yellowtail fishing, we've really been concentrating on the surface with poppers, very large poppers. And we can talk about that later in a little depth here. But to go back to the fishing season in San Carlos, it's it's like we have a year-round season because, like right now, the yellowtail are starting, their spawn has just about completed, and they're starting to water, starting to warm up, and the fish will start moving down to deeper waters. And when that happens, we have warmer currents that are coming up, pushing up uh, from Cabo San Lucas and, and further south in the open waters. And that brings with it all the pelagics. That brings with it all the, the marlin and and uh, the dorado and the tuna. And um, so we switched to surface pelagic fishing, trolling uh, typically uh, during the summer months. And and um, it's a spot in the Sea of Cortez where it seems like a lot of the billfish that are moving up north, they kind of stop. There's a huge reef out in front of San Carlos about 10 miles out that's that creates a lot of upwellings, and the fish just want to concentrate. So we'll spend our summer months, you know, um, typically the middle of May, June, July, August, the water can get a little bit warm, uh, but the fish are still there. And then September, October, and November, the billfish start leaving by the end of November, and our yellowtail start coming right back. So it's like a, that's what's amazing to me about San Carlos. It's there's a lot of great fishing destinations, but they seem often to be more seasonal. Where San Carlos, we just have wonderful fishing. So if you like the cooler months and, and fighting yellowtail and, and, and yellowtail, uh, they're wonderful eating fish. They're just spectacular to eat in, in any way. Um, but they're very, very, very powerful fish, and they fight you all the way to the surface. And I have a lot of guys that, you know, come and fish with me down there, and, and they catch one or two, and they're They're beat. gassed out. They're gassed out. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. The, uh, what is the characteristic of a yellowtail um from from a visual standpoint, between a yellow fi- a fin tuna and a yellow tail, as far as difference in what they look like, are they totally different? Well, they look totally different. Yeah, again, one of them, but there are some similarities. They have a large forked tail. Um, they're a little more cylinder shaped, a little elongated, more almost like an elongated tuna. Um, their mouths are more rounded and not as pointy on them here, uh, opposed to a yellow fin tuna or any of the tuna species. Um, but they're just an, a spectacular fish to fight. And again, the, the, the popper fishing, the topwater fishing is what is becoming really big for us right now. Um, we're really concentrating and we're learning to not just catch them on the surface, you know, um, 
when they're only on the surface, but to draw them up from the depths with our surface lures on clearer days. It's pretty neat to watch. These. So can you actually see them come up for it? Or well, I, it... I, oh, I have a graph on my boat, so I can actually <laughs> see when there's stuff going on on my graph, but I can see stuff coming up. But when the water's super clean, yes. And often we can see there's usually two or three or four or five of them coming up after it, and it's fun to watch them um, jockeying for position, who's going to strike it, and you just keep pulling that big, huge popper, you know, across that surface, and it's splashing and throwing water everywhere. And when they hit it, they we call yellowtail, we call it slashing. They kind of come throw themselves sideways at the bait after they have their mouths wide open. And so often, you know, the hook may, these large poppers may be in their head or somewhere else on them, but they grab the bait and they can rock it to the bottom to 100 feet very quickly. And usually when we're in 100 feet or less of water and we hook the fish and we've got to pull the boat out very quickly, otherwise they dive to the bottom and they'll go down and wrap themselves around a rack and break you off. And they're, they're just tough battling fish. Yellowtail typically, I mean, they travel in schools, obviously like most fish, but is a yellowtail school, is there any differences between, say, a tuna school or a yellowtail school as far as size? I mean, can you usually look at a graph and go, that's yellowtail or that's tuna or... Well, I think that for me, because I graph so much of the same stuff, when I'm looking at my graph, I can kind of tell the difference between what looks like yellowtail, not size-wise, but in terms of this is, they're more spread out opposed to a real dense ball of bait. You know, my, our graphs, you know, we're marking anything that's in the water column, of course, but um, yes, we can typically see, you know, what appears to be a, a ball of bait and a school of yellowtail predator, yellowtail circling it. And so, and it, and that's what it is. Usually when we find that we stop on that and we vertical jig them, um, is, is, is the other main method for us of catching yellowtail knife jigs, vertical jigs. If, if you, so and, and you're, I've seen you on your videos. I mean, you're really having to work the rod. Yellowtail are fish, feeding fish. They're feeding at 20, 25 miles an hour. I tell people all the time, you cannot reel your lure fast enough. Um, people think, is that fast enough? Mate, no. When you think you're reeling fast enough, again, they want to be enticed. And so we use larger diameter spools and, and, and lines and, and um, to really gather line quickly so you're not working as hard. And um, you've got to bring them to them and, and to get them to strike. And so um, the, the last, you know, several years, there's been the big trend and from old school type metal jigs that were used throughout, um, you know, um, fishing saltwater fishing now we have all these new knife jigs so we we get down to deeper waters quicker you know in saltwater of course we're always fighting current and so trying to get a jig down to them can be very difficult you know if they're hanging at 180 feet of water so we use knife jigs now as is is the standard procedure and we typically when we're off fishing we've got a knife jig a, a vertical horizontal jig as well that we throw across the surface, which is a small metal, like almost spoon, but they're weighted three and a half ounces or better. And then we have a popper set up so we can attack anything that's, you know, whatever situation, off, any situation we're ready. So yeah, we're loaded for loaded for them. Does anybody fish for yellowtail with bait anymore? Or is that not near as effective? I or is it one of those deals? We, we, like we try to keep live bait. You know, often there's days where, and yellowtail are funny fish, where one day they're looking for a, um, a live bait only. Sometimes they're wanting, I've, I have times where I'm throwing live bait right into boiling fish and they won't eat it. It's bizarre. When they're really concentrated on a particular food source, um, it's kind of like you're fly fishing where you need to match the hatch. 
Um, you know, guys will throw large. So they're that finicky. They are that finicky. It's it's really, truly amazing to watch. Um, so when we leave port, we try to have live bait. Um, our our San Carlos is, is kind of an, uh, untyp- atypical in terms of a lot of the larger marinas throughout Mexico where bait is typically sold by local pongueros that they can capture it. Um, and they keep it in their pongas, and we pull up to them. We're able to buy bait in them in Cabo San Lucas, Bordevard, to the location like that. San Carlos doesn't have that, um, but there are times where we can, in conditions are right, we throw a cast net, and we will fill the boat up with um, mullets or, or bait of choice, sometimes anchovetas. And I try to have live bait at all times in the boat because you don't know what's going to happen. And so... And sometimes if there's days where we just have, we couldn't get bait or, and it's a bait only bite, um, there's always going to be Pongaros professional guys out there. And, and, and I know a lot of these guys, and so they're willing to sell us bait. So often we just pull up alongside them and, you know, uh, we'll buy bait for them and fill our life well up with, with baits. And again, we fish all different types of styles. And there's some people that, you know, throwing those big poppers and on those big jigs, I know they're not going to be able to do that. So, um, we will keep live bait on there. And yes, we like to live bait fish and it's a true art. It's, it's not always easy to get a, a hookup. We use circle hooks with them as well too. So there's a, there's an art to setting a circle hook or letting the fish set the hook, circle hook, we should say. Let's talk about that. I know that circle hooks, you know, I've talked to some people and they say the circle hooks have, have just been a game changer from traditional hooks. Maybe talk a little bit from an elementary standpoint, walk through both of them and and how the circle hooks work? Well, um, the circle hook, I think, is has been a game changer. I feel that there's a, there's a lot of old school guys out there that just don't like them. And I think that's because they're not taking the time to learn how to not use set the hook, but allow the fish to set the hook. There's, there's to allow them to pick the bait up and to get it in their mouth it down to the point where the hook is going to set. The hook's typically in the corner of their mouths, which is the best place to fight the fish from. Um, from of, a leverage standpoint? From a leverage standpoint, absolutely. That's your best pulling part. That hook's in the corner of his mouth. You know, you feel like you have your best leverage to actually pull the fish up. Um, our bill fishing, um, for, so for yellowtail, live bait, yes. We use a circle hook. We let them eat it. It's a long count. You know, you got to let them really, really eat it. And like, what would it be like? We might let them eat it for 10 seconds. So in other words, you, you're feeling it. You're feeling that they've got it. Not feeling it. It's running out your line. Okay, it's run, running. It's running, running, running. Yeah. Line is peeling from your reel and you're free count, spooling. Free, peeling. You're in free spool. You point the rod tip to him. You don't want any dragging on him. You want it to be as just as minimal amount of drag on that line. And so he can really mouth the fish and, and get it down in, in, into his gullet, well in his throat before you before you allow the fish to set the hook, meaning you start putting it in gear. And we've really, over the years, um, we fish a lot of uh, bill fishing tournaments, and almost all of them that we fish in, if you use dead live bait or any type of a live bait, you must use a circle hook. And again, it's a, it's a, to me, a lot of people complain that they don't get the right hook set with bill fish and a circle hook, but once you learn how to allow the fish to set the hook with the, with this circle hook, um, it will go right to the corner of his mouth. It's a little teeny fine wire hook. We're able to bring the fish right to the boat. We can snap the picture in the, in the fish, you know, and, 
and look at the fish very closely after we leader him, meaning grab the leader, and then we just cut the line very close to it, and the hook will fall out him very, very short time, and you haven't lost a whole lot. Um, obviously, with lures, um, we're still using J-hooks on all of our lures um, with that, and most tournaments allow that. But the great thing about the circle hook, um, you know, there's a lot of lures out there where you've got a lot of billfish, and they jump, 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 and they're shaking their heads hard, and they can shake and spit these J-hooks out. So hookup ratios, I think, are the same um, as terms of J-hooks and circle hooks, but your loss ratio is much – they're not going to get off that circle hook. Um, that circle hook's going to stay right there in the corner of his mouth until you cut that line and there's no more tension on it. And so um, it's actually a better deal for everybody around. You get, I think you have more hookups, less loss ratios for them, and um, obviously much easier on the fish. So we you know, continue to practice that uh, where we're not hurting our billfish and or minimize their stress sure. on them to get them to the boat and get them released um, unharmed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the circle hook's the way to go. It's great in terms of live bait. And, and that goes for all of it. We tuna fish a lot. We use circle hooks uh, when, we're, when we're tuna fishing with live bait as well, too. I've, now, is this albacore? Well, out of San Diego, we're fishing albacore, but even in, in Mexico, we fish yellowfin tuna. And so when we do have live bait and the, yellow, and the yellowfin tuna have showed up in good schools, we'll take live bait out to them, you know, anchovetas and throw them at them. So, yeah, the circle hook's great. I like the circle hook very much. You just need to match the circle hook, too, to the type of bait and the type of fish that you're fishing. Size-wise, I mean? Size, not only um, size, but the wire, you know, diameters as well, too. Finer wires, heavier wires, you know, for different types of fish that you're doing. You know, um, we were fishing shark last week, and we we were fishing hammerheads. There was a lot of them on the surface, and we were throwing live baits to them. And so circle hook's great. It's right in the corner of his mouth. You leader the fish, you bring it up, you cut your fish, the fish is free, and he's gone his way. So it's a, it makes it nice, you know. What what size of hammerheads are you normally seeing down there? Uh, the hammerheads in the Sea of Cortez, we see a lot of big fish. We see a lot of, you know, 150 to 200 pounds, you know. So they're, they're, they're great big hammerheads. And they're surface eaters? Well, they feed up and down the column, but uh, we see a lot of them cruising on the surface like, and their their dorsal friends cutting the water. And when we see that, if we have time and we have the right bait, we'll, just like marlin fishing, we'll lay out some live baits and circle around them and lay the lines right across the top of them and watch them light up and charge it and grab it. And it's a lot of fun. Hold on. Oh, man, that sounds exciting. <laughs> is Is there any fish out there, you know, in the Sea of Cortez off San Carlos that it's like if you're fishing something else, but all of a sudden you see whatever you throw whatever you've got and you're now after that fish is is that the hammerhead or what what is the fish that like you're fishing one type and all of a sudden it changes and you see something you like everyone's like the fish well i i would say the upper part of the sea of cortez where we fish the middle part of the sea course we don't see as much yellowfin tuna but in the summer months when we're trolling for the marlin and dorado because they all eat the same that the tuna don't want to eat the same unless you have tuna lures in your spread but when we see tuna start foaming and boiling on the surface here, yes, we will pull all of our marlins in very, very quickly, and we will go right to them and go right to the birds and switch it up and hopefully have some baiters and smaller jigs and chase the yellowfin tuna because we like to fight the fish on the up and down. And those yellowfin will be what size usually? We find them anywhere from football sizes up to towards about 100 pounds. We don't have great big yellowfin there. There are many other locations throughout the world. Yellowfin live in all the temperate waters throughout the world, and so... Um, the Sea of Cortez, we don't see lots of great big ones um, like they do further south in Cabo San Lucas or out of Puerto Vallarta. 
Um, but we do see um, good schools when come in. Usually they come in early with the striped marlin um, about the middle of May, and then they, the water will start getting too warm um, in the peak of the summer months, and they kind of disappear, and then they come back in September and October. We see more yellowfin tuna schools showing up in there. So, yeah, it's awesome fishing there. Kip, what would you say, I know you love to eat fish too. Yes. Um, what would you say your favorite fish is that you catch in oh San Carlos? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I hate to keep talking about yellowtail, but yellowtail is a spectacular eating fish. Um, as you know, they call it hamachi in the sushi bars. Um, it's We eat it raw. We put it, It's firm and stays on the grill very well. Um, I really enjoy uh, yellowtail. We, we uh, grill it, fry it. You know, do it every single way you can possibly imagine. The winter months are, of course, everybody likes mahi-mahi. And in the summer months, that Dorado is really, really good eating fish. We don't eat it raw. We, we you know, can put it on the grill or you know, mahi-mahi is cooked. So, yeah, um, I would say there's, a, of course, an enormous amount of other smaller reef fish, pargo, real white, firm, flaky meat type fish. Um, the larger groupers I'm not crazy for. I like to try to... Is that a darker meat? No, it's white and it's flaky. It's got a little red tint to it. The larger groupers do, but it's, you know, it's it's a tough meat. It's got a little fishy taste to it, in my opinion. There's other ones out there. We have a lot of smaller fish, like um, they call calicos down in, in Mexico. They're actually called the spotted bay bass is the real name for them. We catch a lot of those, and they're wonderful eating. Split them in half and put them on the grill or fillet them and fry them or however you wish to, and um, of course, red snapper. We get a lot of red snapper down there as well, too. And excellent, real white, flaky meat and fish. And uh, I don't know. I don't know that I can pick. If I have to pick any one of them, it's going to be that yellowtail. I really enjoy eating that yellowtail. It just can be so versatile. can be cooked in so many ways. When you, you obviously take people fishing from all levels of experience, from yes. guys that have fished and are, you know, you don't have to tell them what to do. They know what to do and what have you. They don't need a lot of coaching. Um, but then you take people that are totally inexperienced yes. as well. Are there certain types of fish that maybe if you know you have people that are less experienced that you're going to go target those fish? No. I'm going to take these inexperienced people out there. I'm going to give them the, the, the best I can and try to teach them how to fight what we do. Um, I'm not going to ch- change my... Um, fishing style. I'm going to try to teach them something new. Yes, I take some much older people where, you know, vertical jigging all day long would be physically impossible for them. It's tough for me to do right now, <laughs> you know. Um, but, um, you know, like I said, we'll switch to live bait. We'll do whatever it takes to try to keep that um, in that game, what we're targeting and, and the fish that we're looking for, the game fish that we really want to catch. Um, every once in a while I get somebody that says, Hey, I just want to bottom fish for small fish. And I enjoy that just as much too. So, um, either way, but for the most part, no, we are not going to change our game plan in terms of, um, uh, type of fish we're chasing. No, we're going to, we're going to go out there and try to do the best we can to, I think it goes back to your hunting. You know, I, as a guide, you know, as a young man guiding, used to hear people talk all the time about, well, you know, he couldn't make it up the mountain or he couldn't do this. My client couldn't get up the hill or whatever it is. And I, I think that that's a disservice because this person has hired you to help them and be with them and, and to, I always tell people that tell me that story, Hey, I've hunted guys in wheelchairs. Um, you know what I mean? I've taken people that are paralyzed from the neck down hunting. So you learn to, um, that's what we're here to do is to, to 
help them the best you possibly can to get you know to either that those animals or to those fish so you know i heard you many years ago say that same thing and it it's something that's always resonated with me and my own guiding and stuff where and i've tried to pass that along to some of the younger guys that have asked me about guiding and you know it's something interesting to get your feedback on it but i tell them it's just because you're a good hunter doesn't make you a good guide. No. And and, and I don't no. ever want to hear any of my guides ever come back to camp and say, well, we had it right there and he didn't do it. Well, let me tell you something. If you didn't put him in the right situation to succeed, then it's your fault. That's right. And don't come back to camp saying he missed the shot. No. And it's one of those things I see some of the young guys, they, they need to learn it and they'll learn it eventually. Yes, and I've learned it, um, that you can be the greatest hunter in the world, but that doesn't mean you're a great guide. And sometimes the best guides aren't even the greatest hunters, but they're good people, per, pe- people persons. And they know how to take other people's weaknesses and turn those into, you know, minimize their weaknesses and turn their strengths into huge positives and work with the client for, you know, you may obviously see something right away that's going to be a problem that you can either coach someone up and help them. Yes. Or that you need to know that you need to guard against their weaknesses mm-hmm. and try and bring out their positives as much as you can. Yeah. I, I always think of it as... Um I think I, growing up as a young man, I always thought that hunting was an individual sport. You know what I mean? We, we kind of thought of thinking it's an individual. And as I've gotten older, I've realized, no, this is, we're camping together. It's a team effort between all of us. And when you're hiring someone to help you, then it really becomes, it's a team. And so we know the old cliche, there's no I in team. And so that's kind of the way I look at it. You know, mm-hmm. we're there to work together to the best of both of our abilities, whatever mine is and whatever his might be. And we're going to do the very best we possibly can to get on those fish or get on that deer or whatever we're looking for. For sure. Let, let's step away for a second from San Carlos and let's talk a little bit about fishing off the coast of San Diego. Cause I know a lot of my listeners will, um, you know, some obviously go to Mexico and mm-hmm. some that haven't are going to want to go after listening to this, but there's also some great fishing off the coast of San Diego, which you've done a lot. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about the season's, and, and kind of how that fishery is and kind of, you know, that whole deal off the coast of San Diego. San Diego, first of all, I think is one of the best bangs for your buck. It really is for your, for your money. Um, it, it is very seasonal. The, the tuna um, fishing out of San Diego can be just spectacular. Most of it are fishing in, San, in Mexican waters. But um, there is basically four major landings excuse me five major landings in san diego two of them in sandy in san diego bay and or three of them in san diego bay and two of them in mission bay and they all have numerous boats that of different range lengths some of them are just um a half day boats some are three quarter day boats some of them are what they call a full day some boats have ranges up to three or four days and then some boats actually super long range can be anywhere from a week to 20 days offshore fishing um you're sharing a boat, um, you know, with lots of people. Um, typically, you know, these boats are anywhere from 65 to 100 feet in length. Um, they, the fleet itself, most of them are leaving 
late in the night, um, you know, 9 to 11 o'clock in the evenings here, and you travel all night long. And most of the tuna grounds in San Diego, anywhere from 50 to 100 miles um, offshore. And so as when you wake up at first light or gray dawn, you know that you're on the tuna grounds and you fish, and depending on the length of the trip you've had there, it's a great opportunity. The fish are very well taken care of. All of the boats over there have got excellent captains. They truly do. All have very good deck hands that are willing to help you or there to help you if you're not familiar with it. All of those landings have great rental services where you can buy rent rods uh, for you to go offshore and fish. And um, it's a great opportunity for you to go tuna fishing um, at a pretty reduced price, really. Most of those boats are anywhere from maybe a couple hundred to three hundred dollars for you know a day of fishing for a person but to be on those type of tuna grounds and and have that opportunity they provide you all the baits on them they all have very large bait receivers or bait tanks on the back of their boats they may hold you know a hundred large scoops of anchovies or sardines on the boats and they use for not only chumming but also for your live bait and it's a great really a neat deal because there's really no other place in the world where they have what we're going to call stand-up fishing on large boats. Um, so, you know, you stand up and fight. You're never sitting in a chair. You've got, you know, a little belt on, and you're following these great big tuna on light lines because you're open water. Um, you don't have to – you can scale your line size down and your rod size down, which makes it fun. Um, and you are fighting fish all day long, and it's a great deal. And then the fish are very well taken care of. They have large you know, holds for these fish. So when you get back, you can make a decision to have them fillet them on the boat. Or if you wish to take care of them yourself, you can take them off. And they're well chilled and hard. And it's a great opportunity. I tell a lot of people here in Phoenix that, you know, the way to do it is to leave on a Friday afternoon. For, you know, if you just have short weekends or time is short and you can be in San Diego on a five, six hour drive and you're on a boat that evening, you fish all boat fishes all day Saturday and you come into port late Saturday night and or Sunday morning I should say mm-hmm. the, the boats come in Sunday morning and you drive back to Phoenix and so it's a quick easy way for a guy to get offshore and go catch go catch tuna um, without having to travel to some really really exotic location and find good tuna the last couple of years at San Diego has seen fishing like better than ever it's pretty amazing is that because uh, the water's been warmer and the, the we, currents and stuff have brought had, a bunch of fish up? Yes. We had a true, true El Nino year the year before. The last year was kind of a tail end of it. And so the year before last, we were in San Diego waters. They were seeing blue marlin and wahoo, which are two species of fish that really like super warm water and are very, very historically, very rarely been seen in San Diego waters. Um, there's been a lot of them. And Coming along with them are these large grade of bluefin tuna, which, of course, everybody knows they are just an excellent eating fish and really wonderful and very sought after and very powerful and very fun to catch. And so uh, the bluefin fishery in San Diego has been better and better and better. As a matter of fact, right now, was, I, I watch the reports daily. And by the way, if you ever wanted to look at those reports, you could go to what's oh, called biteson.com. And that's bites, B-I-T-E-S, plural, biteson.com. And you can very quickly go to the San Diego County landings and you can see what their daily reports are, their historic reports. It's a great, great, great website to follow the fishing in San Diego, by the way. And, yeah, it's 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 been very different. And, and my years of fishing in San Diego, we watched years where the albacore were – you know, they would have a thousand fish in the counts every day. And then it's, just, you know, it's a cycle. It's was in my life. I've seen the cycle twice where we've seen albacore in huge numbers and then they just disappear and are gone for six, seven, eight years. And, and, but what 
when they leave because of water conditions, again, it brings in different, different tuna. We start seeing big eyes, yellowfin tuna, more dorado, and yellowtail underneath the offshore kelp patties out of San Diego. So, yeah, San Diego is a great opportunity for a guy that wants to, you know, um, get his feet wet and learn about offshore fishing. And you certainly, over the 40 years of fishing there, you have captains and stuff that you have great relationships with and people you work with and um, you set up trips and what have you. So if anybody wanted to know specifically guys that you recommend and, you know, that you have relationships with, that's certainly something you do. Absolutely. Um, I know, again, most all the boats and all the fleets over there, and I know the private, I know several private boat guys too that are, you know, fishing offshore as well too, so... Yeah, you could uh, reach out to me if you wanted to, you know, have some information. I'd be happy to send you anything or talk to you about it, give you as much information as I have in terms of fishing out of San Diego. You know, one thing with with the amount of knowledge you have in San Diego and it being a close fishery for people here, say in Arizona, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that's so neat about San Carlos is, I mean, People coming from anywhere in in the United States can literally fly right into Hermosillo mm-hmm. and be a you know a little over an hour drive. That's right, and be in some incredible fishing, and that's probably why you've gravitated towards San Carlos because, I mean, I know you. You follow like you're always in the mule. You know the bet. You're on the Arizona Strip for mule deer. You're in the you know the best units in Arizona for yes. elk. Like you follow where it's good, and that's kind of like me. Where the tur- you know some of the best turkey hunting places. That's where I go because I want to go where it's good. Yeah, and San- so now you're in San Carlos. Yeah, San Carlos is an epic fishery. And going back to you know talking about San Diego being a great opportunity for you to catch tuna. Um, the guys that really want to target to it. San Carlos is a really a great location to catch billfish. You know, there's a lot of exotic places to go and that are very difficult to get for and get to, and you may have an opportunity in two or three days of offshore fishing to get, you know, one or two strikes at billfish. Um, it's common for me to have multiple billfish, you know, during the, you know, end of May, June, July. It's very, pretty Pretty often we see multiple billfish on, you know, hookups throughout the day. And often we see, and, and during the peak of it, we'll see double digits. So, and the neat thing about San Carlos too, is that we have really four species of billfish that show up there. The early part of the year, we have striped marlin and the striped marlin will hang out for a little longer too, when the water starts getting water. But then the really warm water starts showing up and that's when we get huge um, schools of, of sailfish, big, large Pacific sailfish. Um, some of the biggest sailfish that I've chased um, anywhere in San Carlos, we see a lot of them that are 70 pound plus fish. So those are big sailfish. But also comes with them are the blue and black marlin. We don't see tons and tons of the larger um, fish, the blues and blacks, but we do have good opportunities. And and typically, you know, during the peak of the season here, we'll we'll be lucky enough to hook you know one or two of these these larger grade fish. So when you guys are doing that sort of fishing, when a blue or black shows up, is it like, oh crap, we don't have the gear out, or are you set up that if one hits, you've got a chance to land them? So we typically have a pretty good idea what's in the water out there, and if we think it's all straight sailfish or something like that, then yeah, we'll go for a lighter size. But we almost always will have two large rods, you know, 50s or 80s, 80 wides, you know, set up on our corners and our short corners in our boat. We have a trolling pattern that we like to pull that we hope is um, attracting not only, you know, your sailfish, but also if there is a bigger blue blue or black in the area there, we put larger, you know, 15, 16, 17 inch long lures, you know, in those corners. 
And so, but of course, inevitably, like you're thinking, we often hook <laughs> these great big fish <laughs> on, on smaller reels and we've been spooled. I've been spooled lots of times down there where we just, the fish is racing away from you so quickly you can't even catch them. So, um, you know, unlike a place like Hawaii where everything they're trolling is great, big, big huge stuff, and you're only going to be sitting in a chair, all of our gear is stand-up gear. Um, uh, we, the, the most of the boats that I fish in, we don't fish out of fighting chairs. We stand-up fish. I do have bucket harnesses on board, too, where you could really strap in on some really big, long battles on some bigger grade of fish. But for the most part, you know, um, we just, you know, your knees are against the rail, you're braced, and you're pulling and gathering line and short stroke of the fish and just trying to get him to turn his head and come your direction here so we can get a hold of that leader. And so the heavier rods and reels that you see in some of these other locations, you know, um, are not necessary for us, you know. Um, yes, again, going back, I've been spooled there a few times, but for the most part, uh, we chase the fish as quickly as we can as he's rocketing and greyhounding across the surface here. We'll put it in gear and chase him as quickly as he can trying to gather line. But, I, I want to ask you um, a question about fishing in tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, before I before we do that, I want to make a mention here for my sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com insider Lorenzo Sartini and his crew uh, for their sponsorship of this podcast and let you guys know as listeners that you can use the J. Scott promo code when you sign up for GoHunt.com insider and you can get a $50 Kuyu gift card upon signing up. Also want to thank Cody Nelson at the Outdoorsman's great guy outdoorsmans.com uh, 1-800-291-8065 if you use the j scott promo code you're going to get a 10 percent discount i know kip you you get stuff at the outdoorsman's i've known those guys for many many years oh yes this is the place to go for your hunting optics and hunting gear for sure yeah and uh, cody does such a great job and then uh, kuyu.com jason harrison and his group over in dixon california i'm just honored to have them sponsor my podcast and then phonescope.com, Cheston Davis out of Beaver, Utah. If you use the J. Scott 16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount with Phonescope. And um, Kip, I, I want to ask you, I know you fished in a bunch of tournaments, but a lot of your fishing is just going out and fishing, enjoying fishing. Mm-hmm. What is it like to fish in a tournament as far as it it, take, it brings it to a whole nother level, I would think. I've never fished in a tournament, um, and and is 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 fishing in tournaments a deal where it can be you know ego driven and it can be competition driven and it can get take the fun out of it, so to speak, or are there ways to fish in a few tournaments, you know, compete, do your best, but still keep it fun? I mean, I think it's like you can be a golfer. And just enjoy golf with your buddies and be really good at it and what have you. And then you can get into this where you're playing in tournaments. And then it can almost get in a situation where it's work. And I'm just curious how, how the ebb and flow of that is with you. Well, I think it goes both ways. I think that there's guys out there that allow the competition to get to them and becomes you know frustrating for them and, and it's too hard. Of course, you know earlier in the thing, I think I told you I wasn't as comp- competitive in terms of that, but I obviously if you're in a tournament, yes, we become very, very competitive, but I'm always going to have fun um, in my tournaments. I'm never going to allow um, you know either tough fishing or lost fish or bad luck or whatever it is that's going on to to affect my day on the water and again going back to what we talked about earlier in this podcast and that is we enjoy every moment on the water um 
the tournaments, there's a lot of small tournaments that um, not as much money involved. And I think there's a lot of guys out there that if they, you know, would like to get involved with tournaments, San Carlos itself, we have about four really good tournaments in San Carlos every year that are a lot of fun, very inexpensive to get into. And it's, and so you're not sweating it so hard and it just makes it a lot more fun mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Um, I competed in the world championships in 2014 in Costa Rica and I was stressed. I was, I was really, really. From a standpoint of you wanted to perform and you knew that you, you know, you knew you're as good a fisherman as anyone. You just wanted to go out there and win. That caused the stress. I, I think that, um, yes, I think that's it. You know, you're just, there's so much pressure on you to think that, you know, this, this little team from San Carlos, I was representing San Carlos, Mexico, because we had won um, tournaments up there that qualified us for the, for the world championship. So that one, yeah, it just seemed like the, there were so many people watching me on this one here and really rooting for us as well. And of course, they have the results daily on the Internet, and so everybody was sending me lots of information about that. And, and I'll proudly boast that we placed 13th that year, and we just had a great, great time and it's a, in, in, in terms of that. Um, but there was stressful times there for sure. Um, in terms of guys that wanted to, to, to tournament fish and learn more about that, it's, there's so many small tournaments throughout, you know, the Sea of Cortez from the East Cape all the way up to San Carlos, all the way to Rocky Point for that matter. There's tournaments going up there for bottom fishing. And, and to me, they're just a lot more fun. You know, I, I think I take that back to, you know, many years ago, Jay, we used to fish bass fishing tournaments and it always seems so stressful. And then remember the Bill Luke's big bass days yeah. back there? Those yeah. were, that was, a, to me, that was a fun tournament, yeah, you know, because yeah. everybody's involved, family and everything. It was just a lot of fun. So um, I think it can go both ways. And I see guys on boats, the way you described, just being angry, frustrated, or not happy, or not having a good day. And I don't know how you can, that can possibly be if you're, having a great day on the water and fishing, then, hey, it's a beautiful day. There's, you got to have a little luck, too. Kip, um, most of the fishing that I've done is freshwater fishing. Most of it's trout fishing. Um, but I know that there's this whole thing of using light tackle, light line, trying to catch fish maybe that are uh, bigger than what the test you're using or the tackle you're using and I was curious if the same thing plays into your saltwater fishing in that is it just a function of you get more bites because you have smaller lines and stuff? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, I think in saltwater fishing that sometimes you need to scale down. You know, there are certain fish that are very finicky out there that are very can be very line shy. And some of them, tuna, are more likely to be line shy than, than most of the fish we have out there. I think more of it is the fun of fighting fish on lighter line than actually catching the fish. Um, I think there's a lot of guys. But in this day and age, um, there are so many small, lightweight setups out there that are really have huge, heavy drags on them. They're really designed. I'm seeing little teeny tiny reels that will fit in the palm of your hand and rods that look like you'd be buying them for a five-year-old, you know, like a Snoopy rod looks like, mm-hmm. or, you know, that guys are using to catch them and you can bend them in a complete circle, these rods. And it's just amazing to watch some of these super lightweight rods. And, and again, the more we go along, there's, I think that goes back to even more specialty type lures that we're utilizing, not just the line, but the type of lures and baits that we're throwing anymore. Um, you know, again, we we're talking about knife jigs earlier 
you know, earlier here. And, of course, knife jigs, they just cut through the water so much cleaner and nicer. So you're pulling them. It's not hurting your shoulders and back. And so you don't need these big, heavy rods to lift these heavier jigs from the depth. You can scale down your rod size so that when you do hook fish, you know, you have a little more fun. We were talking earlier about, you know, large reels for on for catching marlin. And, and we typically have just a couple of really big reels on there. But... There's a bunch of really small reels out there that look like they'd be more applicable for bass fishing that we catch marlin with. Um, and, and especially with these lines, all the new lines that are out there. Um, Tell me about the lines real fast. Are we, I, I'm not into it to know. I mean, is it still fishing monofilament? Or are you fishing braided? What are you fishing? You know, we used to think we'd put a backing of spectras and backing of these type of lines and then fill them up with monos. And in this time now it seems like everything's changed where i'm going to except for some of our large marlin and and billfish type trolling rods where we still like to stretch in the monofilament almost everything else that i'm fishing we fill them to the top all of our spools to the top with um, appropriate size um, braided line spectra of some kind Um, and then this way we can change our top shots you know depending on what we're doing so we can very quickly um, you know, switch from a, if we're using 65-pound braid, which has a very small diameter, uh, maybe the diameter of 20-pound test, we can switch to 20-pound monofilament to, with, of fluorocarbon if we we're going after finicky yellowfin tuna offshore. We can quickly have that on there. Or we can quickly put an 80- or 100-pound top shot on and then tie our bigger poppers on so you can throw your, your larger lures. So, Are, are you connecting those, um, you know, by knots? Or are you connecting them by swivel hookups or what kind of? No, because they're wind-ons. They're all watts, all knots. Yeah, you need okay. to, you know, I, I think there's a lot of guys out there that are just now learning how to make good, solid connections uh, between their spectra and their monofilaments. And... I've played with a lot of different knots out there in terms of connections, you know, um, over the last few years. There's two in particular that I really like. One is the FG knot, which is a, a great knot, and the other one is the Tony Pena. You can look them up on the Internet, on YouTube. You can see how they're tied there. I think that Tony Pena, actually, you should might be a little familiar with it, too, because as a fly fisherman, the Tony Pena knot was designed by a saltwater fly fisherman, and the reason why is because the knot itself is kind of tapered up the, to the lot, so the knots going out the guides, it makes for much easier. Smoother cat. going out. Thank you, much smoother. That's the mm-hmm. word I'm looking for. Much smoother going out. So, I use that knot, and I've done very, very well with it, and I enjoy it very much. And again, we fill up all of our reels to the very, very top, and we use very short top shots, maybe, maybe four to ten foot in length of monofilaments. All we have in our top shots. And you, you said something there that I just think I would point out to anybody that's listening that maybe doesn't know. What you're saying and where you want, and we use it in fly fishing too, where you want those knots to slide in and out of the guides. Mm-hmm. The reason you want that, Kip, is why? Uh, longer casts, number one, we get longer casts, but also upon, yeah, coming back in, we don't, you don't break the knots. And more so in other words, the guys, the, the knot is going to catch in the guides and possibly put too much pressure and pop your fish off. Well, you keep, I think what happens is you just keep casting and that long pressure, that line going out and hitting those, hitting those guides every time just weakens the knot, weakens the knot mm-hmm. to the point where either it breaks off during the cast or the next time you catch a big fish and you're like, why did my knot fail? Well, it got beat up in there in, yeah. in going in and out so many times. So, uh, Are any of the fish that you're catching, are you using a steel leader or any anything like that where they're, you know, actually where their teeth are hitting they're going to cut through well you heard me mention earlier that we will sometimes like to play with sharks so every once in a while you know i always have a shark rig and we'll have cable on them um no um i don't you know 
if I fish in the Caribbean, which, which, uh, we do, you know, periodically I'll get in the Caribbean of course where you have a lot more toothier fish, um, you know, barracuda and that type of stuff over there. We'll use some wire leaders, um, depending on, um, you know, what we're fishing for, but no, I, I'm, I almost prefer to upsize my monofilament leader. You know, I might go, okay, well, I'll just go to a 200 pound front top shot, you know, something very, very, a little bit heavier where it might be more difficult for them to chew through. And it also depends on your lure, you know, um, your bait that you're using, I should say, because, you know, some fish are going to engulf the whole thing on a live bait. You may need to have that cable, but there's lures where I know the lure is going to be in his mouth and we're not worried about engulfing the whole thing. But of course we're fighting a lot of bigger fish in, in where they can wrap up in it too. They're twisting, rolling. And so you need to have good long leaders on them. Often we'll put a top shot and then sometimes we'll put, we'll call a shock leader, which might be just kind of a little tougher, heavier line before you get to your braid, make that a little longer and then put your full top shot on top mm-hmm. of that. So. Do you ever use the shock leaders that actually have a little bit of, of, of stretch quite a bit of stretch to them to give a little bit so if a fish really takes I, that was a big thing in fly fishing oh eight ten years ago uh, you know some of these real lightweight tippets they actually had a little shock gum had a little seen that and and it actually gives a little bit of give so if that fish really takes i was curious if they ever use it in salt water no i don't use those or anything like that in salt water i just make sure we have good drags on our reels yeah <laughs> 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 Got to have a good, well, well lubricated and good yeah. and, uh, reel and with a good drag system on it. Kip, you fished um, all over the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there any place that you have maybe not fished that much, but that you really have your eye on that you would like to go back? Or, or you know, are there any places other than San Carlos? I mean, are there other places that you know you're kind of eyeballing? Is yeah. yeah, I'd love to get back. Well, I am um, have been lucky enough to fish Panama on a couple occasions, and the Hannibal Bank off of the coast of Panama um, is a spectacular location. Logistically, it's tough to get to, and it's sometimes cost prohibitive, you know. So, but it's the, it's an incredible fishery. Um, all the Pacific side of Panama, both sides of it, but uh, the Pacific side of, of Panama has um, just some amazing fishing, and the Hannibal Bank is a location where. There are very, very large black marlin, very big yellowfin tuna, and then it has really, really good inshore fishing um, as well, too, for wahoo and kubera snapper and rooster fish and different types of jacks. So I, if I had to pick one of these locations you're talking about, yes, I would say the offshore bank of Hannibal Bank off of Coiba Island in, in Panama is just a incredible destination and if you love offshore fishing somehow you got to try to get out there and see what that's all about because it's a really great place and of course now they've opened up the the galapagos and i've been reading a lot and seeing a lot about that and though i have not had a chance to go there this looks amazing to me i so if there's one place that i haven't been to you're saying i want to go to i want to fish these galapagos islands that's cool yeah that's cool i want to shift gears just a little bit um you've been going to mexico for a long long time yes. for deer yes both mule deer and coos deer both and yes have had great success down there with both animals thank you um curious to have you talk a little bit about kind of the areas you hunt not specifically the the areas but just in generalities this is more of you know desert coos deer hunting as opposed to darn i do a lot of mountain yes. coos deer hunting which you've done a lot of yes. also but it seems like over the last 10 years or so you've really focused on desert coos deer. Yes. 
Um, the biggest coos deer I ever shot was a desert buck mm-hmm. down in some of that country. I'm sure that you run around in down there and, it, you know, having your home port be in San Carlos and having the ability to hunt deer in very close proximity as well. Um, both mule deer and coos. I was just curious, um, your thoughts a little bit on the rut and, and the timing of sometimes, you know, seems like those deer, the coos deer specifically rut all the way into February. Mm-hmm, they don't sure. even get started. I mean, they're not even considering starting when, you know, we're up in Northern Sonora and no. the deer are going crazy and, yes. you know, they're not doing anything down South. Yes. Um, just curious to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the success you've had in hunting large mule deer and large coos deer in Sonora. Um, well, like you said, um, I spent a lot of time in the Northern uh, part of Sonora hunting early on. And, um, there's some fabulous hunting, obviously up there, wonderful hunting. Um, but I found myself gravitating further and further closer to San Carlos. Again, logistically, um, most of the ranches and the places I'm on are within an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours from, uh, from San Carlos, Sonora. So, and it, there are of course, large mountain ranges that erupt out of the desert, but the deer don't seem to really want to be on those mountain ranges. They enjoy the flats. There's big, huge flat areas and, and, um, you know, that hold lots of deer, it seems like. Um, we f- find the deer, and, and there's less water s- in the south half of Sonora down than there is in the mountain ranges. I know that up where you're at, every little drainage that has a little bit of water, creek, mm-hmm. something, a spring, or something like that, where we don't have that down there. So waters, um, both um, some of the natural ones, but more of them all artificial, you know, set up for the cattle and stuff on these ranches out there. And so... It makes for, I hate to say this, just makes our work a lot easier for us to be able to, you know, find and locate. the, the Kind of congregates them, doesn't it? Well, it really congregates them is also, but it also makes it easier for, we use some trail timer cameras, so we're able to, you know, find, um, you know, the deer and really look them over and kind of categorize and concentrate on a particular area that we wish to hunt on. Um, the mule deer, not as much go to the water. I think a lot of our mule deer in that part of the state down there are very content eating choya and getting their moisture from their feed. Uh, where our little whitetail, they just seem to just run to those waters. And it's, um, we like to, um, you know, some of the ranches we hunt are more glassable. Some of them we high rack on as well, too. Um, and um, we like to get up and use our optics. We're born and raised doing optics. You and I pride ourselves using our optics mm-hmm. for a very long time and finding deer with our, our optics. But um, the these a lot of this as where we're sitting on water often and watching water. Um, and I think that the deer down there just um, are so habituated to the water that it's very easy for us to, you know, really look at them and find them. Uh, uh, on most of these ranches, um, they're, oper- you know, operating cattle ranches. Sure. Um, do you notice that uh, if the cattle are really, you know, when do you notice the cattle coming in water as opposed to when are the deer watering and do they overlap or um, is it funny like here comes the cattle and you're like, ah, no deer are going to come or are they coming and going at the same time? Um, so it's really bizarre, but often they're watering at the same time. Um, it amazes me and people, you know, for many years I would hunt with people and like, oh, I don't want the cattle. I want to hunt here because there's cattle here. But I very often see them drinking side by side very, very often. And it seems like um, a lot of the water or the ranches that we hunt were sitting water. Um, you know, it seemed like, okay, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Here comes a few cows and here comes some more cows. And all of a sudden here come the deer with them. It's like they 
I, I don't know if they're coming to – they feel more secure. Or well, what don't you think – I mean, cattle, as much as we think cattle are just – I mean, I'm sorry, but I just think they're stupid sometimes. Yeah. Cattle also I, – I, it's funny when I'm sitting, you know, water for elk or something, elk will come in, not even notice you, and a big mama cow comes in, and she just walks in just slow as can be, and then she just turns her head, and she's looking right at you. And yeah. sometimes I almost think the deer almost – if the cattle are in there drinking, everything's fine. Absolutely. I'm just curious your thoughts on I, that. I agree with you 100%. I think it's a security for them. If they know they, they work together, they help each other out, I think each one of them can see um, in their faces they're, they're, if there's something bad going on and they know what's happening here. I truly believe that. Um, it goes back to what we are just talking about here now. I used to sit on elk tanks, and guys were like, well, the cattle came in, so I was throwing rocks at them to go away. I'm like, no, let the it's a decoy. The cattle, you know, are sitting there drinking. They elk see it. They come right to it. Yeah, you know? if the cattle are content, that means everything's fine. Yeah, everything's If good. you're chasing cattle off, I mean, I've done both where I chase yes. them off and <laughs> right. throw rocks and right. gosh dang cattle everywhere. <laughs> right. Because you think they're just surrounded and they're just standing there that the elk aren't going to come in or the deer aren't going to come in. So you're seeing that in Sonora where um, they, they come in at the same time. They're well, allies. Yeah. They're, they're per- allies. That's a perfect. That's they're, a- they're, they're complete allies in my opinion. I think both... Uh, uh, elk and deer uh, find cattle as an ally in helping them in, in, in their senses. What are you seeing as far as your times? If if people were listening and and they're used to sitting water, water whether you know in Arizona or in Mexico hunting coos deer, um, I, I I'm so fascinated by timing and what is your perception that most deer water kind of if you had a couple hour window every day, would you say this is kind of the prime time? Well, on the ranches I'm hunting in Mexico, and it's been this way for quite some time, it's usually a mid-morning. Um, um, seems like, you know, 8.30 to 11.30 is when we see the peak of our, our deer coming. Um, there's certain waters here in Arizona, um, like where I mule deer hunt, where if I know the tank is close proximity to a bedding area, you know, that water will get a lot of mid-morning pressure to it as well, too. So I think it also has to do with logistics where that water is sitting in, in, in terms of where they're bedded for the day and if they're going to come drink a drink or if it's in the path to their bedding area. In other words, if there was a water way out in the flats and they've got to come get water and then go all the way back to their beds, it may change their time when they're coming in. But if it's fairly close proximity to where they bed, it, it might shorten that window up. Is that, is that what I hear you saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly how I feel. Um, I, 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 it makes me think of a water hole up on the Kaibab that we've hunted for many years up there. And, and there's several other water holes that are in close proximity of this water hole. But uh, this water hole, I go to it, and I've been lucky enough to take numerous deer off this water. And it's always between 9 and 11 o'clock. We shoot deer on this thing. It's like everybody's kind of gone back to camp or doing their thing or slowing down or and it's like all of a sudden, but that it that water sits in very close proximity to a very large bedding area where a lot of deer want to go after they move off the wintering ground flats and move up to the tree line. Um, I I think that's the reason why. Again, that water sits logistically close to their beds, and so they're a little tired, or maybe been chasing, they've been running, and all of a sudden, well, I'm a little thirsty. I'm going to get a drink before the evening activities start up, and so mm-hmm. they come get a drink. And often it's the better bucks. Quite often, I find that are getting them. And of course, our trail timer cameras help us with that sure. tremendously. Sure. It's, it's interesting how trail cameras, you can take what you perceive with your own eyes and your own experiences, but then trail cameras confirm a lot of that. They don't lie. Because one thing about <laughs> the trail cameras is it's day after day after day after day. Yes. 
the the coos deer it's kind of funny to me how you have some ranches in mexico that are very low density and then you've got here these flats ranches a lot of which you hunt these flats ranches that have actually really high densities Mm -hmm. from a standpoint of trying to glass and spot and stock sometimes they can be difficult because a lot of them are thick and what have you yes and so you choose to do a lot of sitting water and 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 because you know those times when they're coming in, I mean, you're having days where you're having 100 plus deer in some days, maybe, you know, maybe 50 deer in one day, but maybe 100 in, it, in another. Yes. I'm, I'm curious, going from like a glasser and, you know, that being one of your main successful tools for so many years, mm-hmm. how you got yourself to kind of slow down, so to speak, and be like, this is a better tactic. Um, I think well again yes we love our glass and we love to get to the top of the hill we love to look out and and find deer it's a it's a great part of of hunting for us glassing and, and i know both you and i pride ourselves in our ability to use you know optics like that i think it really just boils down to successes you know knowing that um you know hell, for example there's a, a water hole that i hunt in mexico on one of our ranches and above it's a big huge knob and i've had other buddies that have been on the ranch and i'm like we're gonna get on that big knob and glass and i'm like okay you can go up there and glass but you know, you're a couple miles away from getting after any one of these deers. But if you sit at that water right there, every deer that lives within a couple miles of this water is coming to that water today. That's just how it works. And if he doesn't come today, he's for sure coming the following day. So we see that pattern. So, yes, it's very common for us to want to do what we normally do. And we get up and we get on these knobs before light and we watch the sun come and we do a little glassing. And then it's like, okay, it's getting close to 830. Let's just, we've glassed for an hour and a half. I haven't seen what we want. Let's go sit some water. And I've, I've learned to, sitting has always been difficult for me to do, whether it's tree stand, ground blind, or just a, sitting on a water and watching it. Uh, we've made ourselves comfortable over the last couple of years. We've figured out how to really set up our water holes where we've, you know, got the right stuff that, for the long slit, sit, if mm-hmm. you will. And, um, yeah, it's fun. And I think for me, you know, going back to using our optics, I, I still use, not my big eyes, but I use a pair of 15s on these waters. And we're looking at deer much less than 100 yards away, but I can really scrutinize them, really have plenty of time to look at them and make a decision. And, and um, it's great. I love it. And I think even more so, it's not just the deer. Um, these deserts, as you know, are full of game. Uh, it's fun to watch. Um, you know, the, what nature's show puts on for you. You've got several species of quail, several species of dove. You have ducks flying in and out on these ponds. You've got javelina coming in and drinks, bobcats, coyotes, um, uh, cotamundes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have the birds of prey circling these water holes. It's a lot of fun. So I'm really, really enjoying my time on the water um, watching, you know, nature's best. For sure. Do you see a lot of elegante quail? um down there well the ranches i've been hunting the last few years of my life we i'm very lucky because they've got a lot of elegante quail and it's a really they're amazing aren't they they're beautiful i love to listen to them we sit on those waters and you can hear them coming a half a mile away they make that little peeping quail noise and as and then they come up and they're real hesitant and they're looking for birds over you know birds of prey overhead and they all slip in and get a drink but yes the elegantes are a spectacular bird they're we've been encouraging guys to bring a shotgun, you know, on your gun permit in Mexico, as you know, you can have two weapons. So we encourage guys to bring a shotgun and a rifle both. And that way we can uh, chase quail or shoot some ducks or do whatever else we want to do. And of course I like the shotgun for varmint calling. There's lots of great varmint calling. Um, 
but yeah, those elecantes are great. Um, they're though I've never hunted Bob White. I'm going to try to make a comparison to Bob White because they hold so close to your feet and and you even know, more than say a Mearns. Oh, very similar to what Mearns do. Yeah. yeah, that would be probably a better comparison. And the elegante, um, they have the orange top knot. Yes. Top, Top yes, knot, they right? do. Yeah, top yeah. knot. I'm gonna call it a top knot too. Isn't that right? Top? I think that's right. Top yeah, knot's the right word knot. for that. Yeah. Um, and they're just beautiful. I've seen a few, uh-huh. um, but not near as many as you have. But you know, the the mule deer and the desert coos deer mm-hmm. are fascinating to me because they live down there and sometimes kip your temperatures. You know, when you're hunting into February, mm-hmm. sometimes into the second week in February, depending on the season dates. Um, it can be 85 degrees outside. Very easily. It could be, you know, 35 in the morning and 85 during the middle of the day. Yes. It's, it's amazing the temperature difference. Um, one of the best bucks I ever shot was down there on a flats ranch and it was, I want to say it was like 90 degrees the day I shot him. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And they're rutting. (laughs) And they're rutting like crazy and it doesn't seem to phase them. No, no, they're, they're desert animals, you know, and I think that, um, They've been living down there forever since time one, and I think they're well acclimated to it. And I think that they're very nocturnal, um, you know, during the warmer months. And they very quickly, as the winter months come on, they they start, you know, becoming a little more diurnal and, and out during later in the mornings. And, and um, yeah, it's great. Um, just a wonderful opportunity, I think. Those um, big mule deer that you guys are shooting down there and that you've seen over the years... Um they're they're unique in their own right as well and like you said a lot of them are not near as predictable on water and they 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 just live in those choya patches and eat that choya um and a a lot of um the some of the best hunting is high racking yes um tell me a little bit about high racking and and how it works and and you know kind of that process well, we have big racks that obviously fit in the bed of our trucks that we bolt down. Actually, mine bolts right down to my frame. Um, typically, you know, you're going to have a place to place your weapon, obviously a nice basket or something like that, and your optics and other things up there. Um, some guys set them up with bench seats side by side. I like them personally with individual seats on the high rack itself, so the shooter's a little bit forward. Uh, you have a driver um, also as well, too, that we we tie a string to his hand is what we do and then mm-hmm. when we drive down the road if i see something i just kind of touch that string real lightly and he'll come to a stop and then we can say forwards or backwards if we need to glass or if, tell him to shut it off if we need to actually look at it or if we're preparing to shoot from the rack um yeah the rack is great because you know and I, some people are a little hesitant to hunt up in them um but the they're awesome because we are hunting very large, flat areas that have very thick, dense mesquite thickets, and it's impossible to, you know, see through this stuff without having a little bit of elevation on them. And so um, it's great, you know, and you see all kinds of stuff up there. Uh, do, chill- the, do the deer literally let – I mean, I, I've i done it a little bit, and it, and it seems like the deer that are – 30 40 yards off the road they're in a thicket and they're so used to trucks driving by and they know that they can't see them but you're up in the air you know 25 feet up in the air or so well 15 feet i guess yeah you'd be probably 15 yeah, yeah. 15 feet and huh? and you can see them in the deer so tell me some stories like the deer 
Do they not even pay attention to you? Very often, um, they have no idea. It's like they don't even look up there to us. It's like they're just so used to looking through the timber and looking at the truck as it drives by. And and it's it it, it, it amazes me how often how how close we get to them in that. Um, very often, we're within archery range. Um, you know, from that rack up there. And so it's it's just a great way to see the country and and you know you get up early in the morning and again we like to get in that high rack and you're dressed very warmly because it's chilly up there you have a little breeze on you and as the morning progresses and the sun comes up we're stripping clothes off but it's a beautiful ride up there on top it's a great way to cover these big flat ranches and and really look them over and and you know look for deer it's an awesome it's an awesome way I, I enjoy it very much and it, it what's mind blowing to me is. There are some giant deer. I mean, just some big, wide, yeah. giant, nasty-looking deer that yes. you're like, they really live out here. Yes. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. It, it does. It freaks me out because, you know, you and I grew up hunting in the mountain ranges of southern Arizona and here, and you and I were chasing coos deer and straight up and stand, and we knew the old cliche that it's a poor man's sheep hunt and it's straight up and down, and then we get in these flats down there. We're like, well, there are no coos deer in the, in the house, and you realize these flats down here are packed with them. Yeah. There's lots and lots and lots of coos deer. Some of these ranches, again, the, the deer densities are mind-boggling in terms of um, you know how many deer we're lucky to see throughout the day. It's pretty neat. It's a lot of fun. I love those big flat ranches. And I'm going to leave those steep, steep mountain <laughs> ranges for you with the strong legs up there, <laughs> <laughs> up in northern Sonora. I'll keep well, hunting southern, southern Sonora. I love following you on your Facebook page and seeing the great bucks you guys killed thank you both mule deer and coos deer and um it's always fun uh so here we are we're kind of middle of april and um did you draw any elk tags or anything no i have not drawn an elk tag i think it's been i think five or six years since i've had an elk tag so normally you guide in unit eight unit nine unit ten uh-huh. you get you've guided in every state every unit in the state but i have normally you're kind of in that eight nine ten kind yes. of circle yes um are you going to be guiding any uh elk hunters in arizona this year or are you taking it off or what are you doing you know this year i do have i have just one early elk hunter that i'm going to be taking um and we're going to be over in 23 good for you yeah good so in your neck of the woods yeah that that'll be fun i'm actually i'm um, going to be in wyoming this year uh, my wife and I, we rented a place in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for awesome. uh, September and October. Uh, but that's fantastic. So you're going to be in 23? Yes, I will. Archery or early rifle? Early rifle. Oh, good. An early rifle, 123 North. Awesome. So awesome. I'm excited about that. You know, it's it's one of those units that's so fun because the elk bugle's so good. and you know, Land the, of a million bugles. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can go out and it's just... It, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that you have a hunter in there because, you know, like I said, you, you like to go to the good areas and the yeah. good spots. Um, if, if people want to contact you about your fishing opportunities, about your hunting opportunities, um, they can do so. And they can also follow you on your Instagram or on your Facebook. Yes. Um, would you do a favor for me and spell your name? Because yes. Patella can be... If you just spell it out how that it sounds, can be. Can, it is very difficult. Yeah. So they can follow you on your Facebook. Sure. Um, my first name is Kip, K-I-P, and my last name is Fatella, and again, it's spelled F as in Frank, F-A-T-T-A-L-E-H. So 
Friend me on Facebook. You can follow me there. Um, or my email address is kipfatella at gmail.com. It's been awesome talking to you today about your passion for hunting and fishing. And I knew I had a very short window. You're off to another adventure here in mm-hmm. a few days. And um, I, I, I wanted to come over. I'm, I'm actually headed to Mexico for my Gould's turkey hunts here on, on Wednesday. Wishing you the best of luck down there. And it's a lot of fun. And, yeah. But I wanted to get over here and, and make sure that uh, we did a podcast. I've been wanting to do it for you know a year now and it just seems like our schedules but yes so nice to get here and do it and do it in person and um just wish you the best of success you've been a great friend for 20 plus years and i've admired watching how you do business and uh, all the successes that you've had both in the hunting and fishing uh industry and and i can't wait to watch how you do in the future and and um so i'm a big fan you've been a mentor of mine and I really appreciate all the help that you've given me. Uh, and, um, you know, it, you never cease to amaze me because, you you know, you have such a vast knowledge in construction. Mm-hmm. You have a, It's like if you want to know something, call Kip and ask him because, you, you've, <laughs> I mean, you've lived life. Like you have a lot of experiences um, that you can draw on, you know, practicality and, and stuff that I think sometimes this day and age just gets lost. That's it. so kind for you to say. Those are so many incredible, great words for you, Jay Scott, because you two are an amazing guy, and I love to watch how you do business. And I think of you more as a mentor for me. I love to watch what you're doing and how you're doing it, and your hunting and is, is fabulous to watch. I enjoy watching you and Dar very, very much, and you have been a very good friend of me. I thank you very, very much for all your kind words. and. And I hope that you and I have some time in the field or in the water very, very soon together. That sounds good, buddy. Thanks for sharing with us. Thank you, Jim. All right. God bless. God bless you, brother.